My name is Mohsen Alatar. I'm an associate professor at the University of Warwick School of Law, and this is my podcast on international economic law. Today's episode is about neoliberalism. What is neoliberalism? It is an ideology that believes in the introduction of competitive market norms into what were historically non-market domains, healthcare, education, electricity, water provision, etc. All of these services that were part of the compromise between labor and capital right around the mid-20th century are now available for transaction through the marketplace. In today's episode, I consider the basis of neoliberalism and how ultimately it undermined then the democratic capitalist compromise of the 20th century. Um, so I would like us to begin with a question. So it's a question I'm going to put to you. Um, it's a question I do not want you to answer just yet. But as we're making our way through today's lecture, I want you to bear this question in mind, as in it relates then roughly to everything that we're considering, but I need you not to answer it yet, but to answer it a little later. So the first question then is, there are in fact two questions, the first one, is the NHS economically efficient? Is the NHS, the National Health Service, economically efficient? That's the first question. The second question, should the NHS aim for economic efficiency? Should the NHS aim for economic efficiency? So those are the two questions I want you to bear in mind as I go through the recap from last week and as we proceed with today's lecture. So brief recap. Cotton manufacturing industry. We spent last week discussing the cotton manufacturing industry largely because cotton is the first global manufacturing industry and is one that relates then to the seminar that you were assigned for this week. Now, we explored cotton manufacturing industry because it gives us an eye into global capitalism. And global capitalism itself is contingent on two elements, global capitalism, global commerce. Resources on one hand, markets on the other. Now we often say just resources and markets, but it's not just resources and markets, it's access to resources and access to markets. Now that's not the same. It's not the same because if you consider then Britain's role in relation to cotton, there were resources in different parts of the world, cotton, and there were markets already in operation, Mesoamerica, African continent, Asian continent, Asian continent split into two major markets, India and China. Everything was there. So it wasn't so much just the existence of resources or the availability of resources or the existence and availability of markets. Those were there already. It is rather the access that you have to those resources and the access that you have to those markets. Now much of global capitalism was driven by a mercantile ambition, a mercantile aspiration. The aim was to grow economic activity as a way to strengthen then this nascent nation state. And this is taking place during a period of inter-imperial rivalry. 
So various monarchs are building nation-states. This is all post-Westphalia. So Westphalia, the Peace of Westphalia in the 17th century. They're building these nation-states. They're trying to build these nation-states requires developing the economic productivity of the nation. And they're doing so largely by sending ships abroad. And those ships are meant to locate resources. And as they locate resources, the aim is to then build markets. So they're engaged in trans-oceanic travel with a purpose. It's not just adventure, it is also to bring back resources that can then be manufactured, fashioned into something else. So early capitalism, early capitalism is denoted by a particular type of accumulation. We said that capitalism is accumulation. We know this, this is the aim ultimately. We're shifting from an agrarian economy, which is a subsistence-based economy, to an accumulationist economy. And to do that, we are appropriating resources. But we are appropriating resources of others. So the type of accumulation is what is known as accumulation by dispossession. Accumulation by dispossession. It's not accumulation by creation, that is another type. This is accumulation by dispossession on one hand, and as we saw with cotton manufacturing, accumulation by disruption on the other. So what is being carried out is both dispossession and disruption. And what are we disrupting? Disrupting existing supply chains. Disrupting existing supply chains, disrupting the economic practices, relations that were already in place. Now, briefly, I would probably say something about private companies. A lot of this was done not by the nation state themselves but rather by private companies that were carrying the flag of the nation state. And I specify that because all of these activities ultimately gave rise or created the need then for new types of law. They created the need for new types of law on three levels. On the one hand, the domestic level. On the other hand, between European states. And on the third hand, between European states and others. So we saw a number then of innovations in relation to municipal law, domestic law. We saw a number of innovations in international law, Euskentium, but also inter-European laws. So we have inter-European laws on one hand and outer European laws on the other. Now that is an important distinction and one that I'm going to spend 30 seconds on. Recall what I said before, if each one of you is a nation state and you engage in relations, you are engaged in international law, internation. But the type of laws that were adopted within Europe, between European states, were different from the type of laws that Europeans would then apply towards others. This created then a disparity, a differential. And that differential remains prevalent today and over the coming weeks where we begin to examine the World Trade Organization, the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank more closely, 
you'll begin to see how some of these disparities retain validity even today that we've moved into this decolonial period where every formal colony is now its own nation state and yet some of those colonial legacies persist until now they persist because the original laws that were developed were not international law as we know it but rather outer state law how european states would behave towards others now all of these types of laws ended up giving shape to the international economic order. I've mentioned this, some examples. The examples are too many to count. Tariffs that were adopted by England to protect the wool and linen industries. Tariffs, a type of protectionism. Do we have tariffs today? Yes, we do. Do we have subsidies to different sectors? Yes, we do, as you're exploring in your seminar. The ideas for that emerged as a result of the influx of cotton in England and a demand that is placed by one of the sectors for protection. Hence why we refer to it as protectionism. Free trade was promoted and free trade was promoted so that we could penetrate the markets of others. We are now producing goods in one market and we want to gain access to their markets. So we begin to call for liberalization, the free flow of goods, the free flow of capital or finance so that we can increase the production of those goods. All of that began with cotton. Subsidies I've already mentioned to growing industries, but then also importantly to other ones Intellectual property, remember the activities that were taking place? Technology transfer or technology theft, really. Industrial espionage, there was no such thing as copyright or trademark, so what were they doing? Copying then the textiles of others and using the labels of foreign manufacturers as a way to sell goods. All what today would be considered IP violations, but these were just normal commercial practices at the time. And then of course competition law and monetary policy which we'll explore later in the term. Now of course, and I always specify this, there were other less dignified ways that we went about the dispossession and the disruption, arms trade, plunder, uh, military coups, etc. From a legal perspective what is most interesting is how in each instance where international law was being deployed and a conception of legality was being constructed, it was always done from a self-serving perspective. Now, what do I mean by that? Recall then with Vittoria, who I mentioned to you before. So Vittoria then builds this use gentium, this law of nations, this international legal regime to justify the trade, the settlement, the colonization that Spain wants to engage in. And that is codified in law. And ultimately the standard of legality ends up being Christianity. You are a Christian or you are a non-Christian. If you are a Christian, then you can engage in these practices. Fast forward, move on into a little later where you've got Grotius and Grotius speaking then about law of the seas and this idea then that everyone can navigate the seas freely. 
Well, that ends up being so long as you have, first off, the ability to navigate in that way, meaning you necessarily have the technology in place. But two, and this is where those standard of civilization emerges, the standard of legality that is applied in the, 16th century, or in the 17th century following Westphalia is one where we have civilized European states and then the uncivilized others. So before it was Christian and non-Christian, but as we start moving away from divine law towards a secular law, we have to abandon then this label, this qualifier of Christianity, and so now we have to come up with a new standard for the differentiation. As I mentioned to you just a minute ago, we had both international law or inter-European law, and this was based on all of us, each of us being a nation-state, a sovereign nation-state. But then we also had this outer state law, how we were going to behave towards non-European states, and why the differential, why the distinction, the standard of civilization. We are civilized, they are not. Because they are not civilized, we can use the, the doctrine of terra nullius to appropriate their land, we can identify them as subhuman to legalize their enslavement. These are the type of actions that were carried out, and we often say these were aberrations of international law, when in fact, no, they were not aberrations. International law itself was used to justify this distinction that was drawn between civilized and uncivilized, between human and non-human, between those who could be citizens and those who were cursed to be slaves. These were not aberrations of international law. These were pathologies of international law. International law was structured specifically for that purpose. Why? We needed resources, so to justify dispossessing people of their land, to justify dispossessing people of their crops, to justify dispossessing people of their minerals, minerals, to justify dispossessing people of their freedom. I needed some justification. And the law provided that justification because the law, which I constructed in self-serving purposes, allowed me to distinguish between those who were civilized and those who were uncivilized. Now fast forward to today, and I'll mention this briefly, Consider what is taking place in Venezuela today. So if you look at Venezuela, if you look at what happened in Iraq just a few years ago, or in Libya, now the standard is not one of Christianity or non-Christian, that wouldn't fly. Not one of civilization versus, or civilized versus uncivilized, that wouldn't fly. So now what is the new standard? Democratic and undemocratic. Democratic and autocratic, democratic and dictatorial. But in every instance, there is a dividing line that is placed to justify a series of legal acts. So when the British government does, as it did just this week, call for the gold reserves of Venezuela to be transferred from the Venezuelan government to the opposition, it says so that it's doing under law to preserve the rule of law, 
and the rule of democracy. It is a legal argument that is made to justify the dispossession. Now, regardless what your politics happen to be in relation to Venezuela, in relation to democracy, the point is not that. The point is that the law itself is again being utilized to justify forms of dispossession. The end result, and this is where today's lesson begins, the end result is a foundational tension within international economic law. International economic law has mercantile qualities, but there is also a liberal thrust to it. We also have a Eurocentric character to international economic law, despite international economic law's universality. And at the same time as there is this notion of sovereignty, nation-state sovereignty that underpins every part of international law, we also have a thread of, or a hue of imperialism running all the way through the framework. So this tension then within international law, do we liberalize, free things up, or do we protect the nation state? Do we universalize things democratically, one state, one vote, or do we make determinations based upon the contributions to the organizations? So there is this tension within it that itself is difficult to reconcile. Can you reconcile liberalism with mercantilism? Can you reconcile universality with Eurocentrism? Can you reconcile sovereignty with imperialism? Near impossible to do so, but international economic law requires that, requires both. Now this tension created conditions for much conflict. And even this period, the 19th century, that is often referred to in a number of texts as the century of peace. So even that century of peace was denoted by much violence. The violence might not have been happening within Europe because Europe was at peace with itself. But also what took place then were genocide in the Americas, blockages, economic, or sorry, blockages, blockades, economic blockades in the Americas. We know then that we also had colonization in South Africa. Remember, the scramble for Africa, the Berlin Conference, 1884. We also had famines, orchestrated famines in South Asia. So as much as that century of peace was peaceful for Europeans within European borders, throughout much of the world, the demands for resources and markets resulted in untold violence untold violence that has not really been replicated in any other century. Now eventually, this peace that you had within Europe began to crumble. It began to fall apart. And why did it fall apart? Largely because of that tension that was in place. Remember what we said? We have this liberalizing thrust. The French want to export their textiles to England. England wants to export its textiles to Germany. Germany wants to export its textiles to Spain. Spain wants to export its textiles to Portugal. And we're beginning to sign trade agreements, treaties. We are liberalizing. But what is driving our exports 
the desire to build up the English fleet, the desire to strengthen the Portuguese military, the desire to enhance German manufacturing. In all instances, the liberalization itself was informed by a mercantile aspiration. So I'm told on one hand I need to build the self up at the expense of the other, but to build myself up, I need the other. So the interdependence itself was woven into international economic law, while at the same time woven within the system is competition. So it's trying to find a way to reconcile what is ultimately competition and cooperation. And it did not last and enter the first great European war, driven largely then by this inter-imperial rivalry. Move on to the second great European war, also driven by that. And as I said to you in the very first lecture, tariffs at the end of the second great European war averaged 40%, 40%, imagine that. Anything that you produced, you had to expect to throw on top of that a 40% tariff to get it into the market of another. The markets were closing off. Second Great European War, we say now, let us move forward, let us cooperate economically for the good of everyone. The shift then that has happened. And at that point, and this is where we move into the second part of today's lesson, at that point, four economic models emerge. Four new economic models, each of which requires a distinct legal framework, but each of which is contingent on access to resources and access to markets. So understand what I'm saying here. We end up with, we end up with a push in roughly 1944 for an international economic law that is based on cooperation. This is now meant to be the doctrine that informs the legal framework. We are still divided in a series of nation states, but all of us are meant to be united around this international economic legal framework that is built on cooperation that is for the universal good. And at this moment, what happens? The nation states divide themselves into four different economic models. It wasn't an embryonic point. These models were already developing in the preceding decades. But at that point, when we decided we were going to have cooperation, we still see four economic models in operation, each of which necessitates a different type of legal framework. 